Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and I'm privileged to be in the Ramsey Solution Studio today talking to my friend, my brother, Dave Ramsey. And in this three-part interview series we're doing, we're talking to Dave and Daniel about the transition that they've moved from Dave being the owner, operator, president, CEO, chief of everything, to transitioning this to where Daniel Ramsey is now the president of Ramsey Solutions, and talking about just some of the aspects of what that's like and the many years of ministry. So, Dave, thanks for your time, as always. Well, thank you. It's a privilege. Good to be with always. you, as always. 1992. Mm-hmm. Take us back for just a, a minute. You're going around teaching, kind of learn from A.L. Williams and others how to teach people up front in a group, Sunday school, hotel ballrooms, how to get out of debt, how to pay off their mortgage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Larry Burkett, Ron yep, Blue Ron, yep. were big influences as well. Later, Howard Dayton and all of those guys became friends, yep. every one of them that you mentioned in, over the years. But at first, I was just in awe of, gosh, the Bible has something to say about money. And I had gone broke, and so I was trying to learn how to handle it myself, trying to put my life back together, trying to learn how to be a husband, learn how to be a leader later, learn how to be a, a dad, all of that. And then in the midst of it, we just started helping people with their money, doing the same thing Sharon and I had started doing to turn our lives around. And it worked. People caught on pretty quick. Total Money Makeover, Financial Peace, now revised, along with the Financial Peace Planner, Entree Leadership, Complete Guide to Money, The Money Answer Book, Smart Money, Smart Kids, The Legacy Journey, A Radical View of Biblical Wealth and Generosity, and most recently, Baby Steps Millionaires, The Hits Keep on Coming, did you always have in your head you were going to be a writer? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. No, I, I was coaching people, or we called it counseling in those days, people at the church as a ministry. After I started getting our stuff together, then pastor called and said, hey, people are in my office getting foreclosed on, can you help? And I'm like, yeah, I used to buy foreclosures, and then I was one. So, you know, uh, I, know I know exactly <laughs> what to sides. do. I know, how to, I know how to help with that. So we sat down with them, and we're able to work out a deal with their mortgage company called a forbearance where they pay payments and got caught up and helped them get on a budget, laid out a budget, applying the biblical principles, but also some of the business things that I'd known from buying real estate. The problem with helping someone like that in that setting is pastors, a lot of them don't know the money stuff, right. they're not strong suit. And so I got another call the next week and the next week and the next week. And so pretty soon I'm over at the church in the evenings doing budget counseling. And long story short, one of the other pastors walked through one day and he goes, every time I hear you sitting with these couples, you're telling them your story to take the shame off of that they're feeling mm-hmm. because you screwed up big time. And so I would do that. I would go, hey, I've done this too, and tell them a little bit of my story, and then I would show them what to do. And he goes, you need to write a book. Mm. And I'm like, no, nah, Christianity needs another get-out-of-debt book like Oprah needs another diet book. No, thank you. I'm not <laughs> doing that. And besides that, if you'd talk to my freshman English teacher, when I turned well, in the first paper, she slit, that, she slit yeah. her wrists and <clears throat> bled all over it. And so English is my second language. Hillbilly's the first one. And so, uh, <laughs> but he kept on me. And finally, I sat down and typed out a book, and it was horrible. And um, <laughs> uh, But I printed it anyway, and it sold. And then we had finally sold enough of them. We had somebody come and help me with the grammar, and we retypeset it. And then a publisher came along, and it was Financial Peace, and it took off. And gosh, that thing's done three million-something copies now over the, a bazillion years now, but I mean, it's, it just keeps selling. I still get checks on it, but no, I was not a writer. I'm still not a great writer. I'm very good about putting down a persuasive case for an idea that I think you ought to embrace. I'm good at that. But in terms of 
technical writing skills. I'm never going to, you know, get an award or something like that, but I'm really good at communicating and I've learned to not let the grammar police take the right. the, the, con- like the conversation out of the book. And as long as you can have a conversation with me on the page, we found those work. And so, but that's definitely not literary works of art. But when you're selling the numbers of books you are in the in the shelf life they have, there's obviously a, a need and we could say a market, but people, oh yeah, they're in trouble and they're looking for help and God's given you an ability to communicate to a segment that yeah. says that makes sense. If we got out of debt, we did these baby steps, you know, and, and going forward. I'm good at helping people with money and books is one way we do it. Well, and you're good at teaching too. I've watched you teach people that have never skied to ski. And I've, <laughs> I've said many times, you're one of the best teachers I've seen on a practical level of a watch one, do one, teach one approach. And you, God's obviously wired and gifted you that way. Let's talk about the role of Christ in your story. I know you probably get tired of telling it to some level because you tell it so often, but some folks don't know how Dave Ramsey met Christ. And part of this whole you know, financial tragedy was what brought you to a, a more foundational belief, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We often say, and it's actually on the wall in the lobby out here, I met God on the way up, got to know him on the way down. But I mean, we were young marrieds, and the short version of the story is Sharon grew up in church, and I didn't. And so she gets up on Sunday morning after we got married and said she was going to church. We're going to church. I said, we're not going to church. We drink beer on Sunday and watch football. I'm <laughs> not going to church. She cried and had a fit and went and we're in Nashville. It's not hard to find a Baptist church. There are more Baptist than people in Nashville. So Ouch. <laughs> she went and found a, a Baptist church and plugged in right quick. And then I got in this multi-level thing for about 20 minutes and went to one of these rah-rah pep rally things. Right. And the guy that we admired that was making money like we wanted to make and we wanted to be him when we grew up, stood up and at the end of his talk said, in essence, you need to know Christ if you're going to succeed. I came home and told Sharon we're going to church. And she said, who are you and what have you done with my husband? So that's the short version of the story. And I wandered in the back door of Christ Church in its early days. It later became a huge mega church. There was only about 400 people when we wandered in the back door with Pastor L.H. Hardwick, who just passed away about Mm -hmm. a year ago, friend of yours, friend of mine. Friends of their sons are good friends of ours guy. as well. Fascinating And just guy. a beautiful yeah. man. And he became my spiritual dad in that sense. And I didn't know beans about Scripture. And so shortly after that, I made a ton of money in real estate. Then I lost it all. And so over about a four-year period, this so by the time I was 26, I had about a million dollars in net worth and $4 million worth of real estate. By the time I was 28, I was bankrupt. So that's six-year story arc. And that three years of going down, two and a half years of going down was hell. But I was a believer, a young baby tender believer. And I'm like, oh, this God stuff's fun. Um, And so, uh, but yeah, we started learning what the Bible says about everything to survive. Really dove in head over heels. And again, that's when I plug into like a Larry Burkett Mm -hmm. or Ron Blue, because they were on the forefront of teaching biblical finance in those days. And I went, wow, if the Bible says something about money, I need to learn it because apparently the stuff I learned isn't right because here I sit broke right, with all these letters and licenses after my name. In the Christian ministry world as well as in business, we talk a lot about principles and things that are timeless in nature. My thesis is people get bored and they always want something new. One of your lines is God and grandma's way hasn't changed and for you personally, have you ever gotten the place where I'm saying the same thing over and over and over again? Oh, I do, yeah. And then the next turn of the heat up a little bit, 
what do you learn new then? What does Dave learn new? Because you're teaching the same. When I teach the Bible, I'm trying to teach a Bible study methodology, but I'm also learning along the way going, mm-hmm. oh. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's new products and new ways to do stupid <laughs> that come up out of here. And so you, that's entertaining for everyone involved, including me. But it's much like sitting down and talking to someone about God that doesn't know God and walking them through the process of accepting the gift of salvation. That's a fairly, there's not a lot of leeway. There's a series of principles there that we're all sinners. Right. We're all sinners. One guy died for all of us. And accepting that is the gift of salvation, and so on. And so there's one process to go through that. But I think we all of us that have done that with someone, you could do it a thousand times, you can do it ten times. It never gets old. True. And it's not because of the process or the principles. They don't change. But what changes is this beautiful life yeah. that's right in front of and, you. And their individual point of need and hurt and trouble. You know, they don't know what and, they don't know. And so I never get bored. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, I'll get people out of debt, and yeah, but it, and it's the same process. It's still the debt snowball. You still live on less than you make. You still need to get on a budget. Yeah, I get all that. But then I get to talk to somebody, and after 30 years of doing radio, I'm sitting here with tears running down my face, mm-hmm. and I'm going, oh, my gosh, that guy's in hospice, and he wants to do a debt-free scream, mm. you know? And I'm like, this does not get old. It's interesting how, and we've, radio time and when you're in the car is all changed with technology, but it used to be the, the Friday debt free screams and you, you know, you couldn't help but cry mm-hmm. hearing these people call in and going, we're debt free. And all that they've been through, the health problems, the bankruptcy, losing a home, living with their mother-in-law, whatever it was, you know, you and I've talked about putting those together in some format and you said, yeah, but they're all the same <laughs> in the sense that the path to salvation spiritually is the same coming to, you know, the conclusion Christ died for me in the financial realm. I'm always steward, never owner. I have to manage what God gives me. I have to do it in a certain way. And that's timeless. It is. And the the law of gravity doesn't change. The entertainment from those who try to violate it (laughs) never changes. It's always entertaining. It's never dull. (laughs) (laughs) We've talked about this in other contexts, but for people listening that maybe have a smaller family business or they're looking down the road, you didn't know what this was going to be. No, no. And there's no way to sit there and go, if you do everything I tell you, one day you'll have 1,100 employees and all these buildings paid for. Two or three for you, these were the defining things that said, okay, now I see there's a real trajectory here for growth or opportunity. And some of them may have been bust, but there were some that you knew in your gut that's the one I'm going to fight for, and that's what I'm going to make happen. The foundation of this place was publishing and broadcasting. And so doing the radio show, fairly quickly we realized doing a talk radio show was effective in the mainstream. We've always been on a few Christian radio stations, but it's primarily mainstream radio talk radio, and yet very bold and open and right. brash almost with our faith. So we knew we could minister, we knew we could witness, we knew we could help and use that medium that way, almost a roaring lambs kind of an idea, and take up some space. You know, every time we're on a station, that means something filthy's not. We're displacing some of the toxic culture by staying in the mainstream and keep swinging. But year over year over year, I mean, we thought, gosh, if we could ever get 100 stations. And then we thought, gosh, if we ever get 200, maybe we would be respected. And then we, you know, and we're 680 now, and it's the second largest talk radio show in America. But it's taken 30 years of scratching, clawing, fighting, arguing, threatening. <laughs> and it doesn't stop. 
It doesn't stop. We're still doing it yesterday. I mean, oh my gosh, it's just, there's always somebody. And then publishing, you know, obviously the publishing world's completely changed in 30 years. When I started, if you self-published something, you were an idiot. Right. You couldn't get a publisher. You didn't have anything to say. And so, but I self-published because no one would do right. it. <laughs> right. And then I had publishers for a while, and then we determined we were doing all the things they were doing. And so that was silly. But the model shifted. Our access to distribution models and everything else in the publishing world allows us to self-publish and be much more effective than using a publisher mm -hmm. today. But we've got this massive platform to do it from. Mm -hmm. And a you know an existing household name as a brand, and so all of that helps you to do all of that, and you can't do that. So, but there used to be these things called bookstores. Yeah, people come for book signings. Not you know, so much. And, oh man, they're just about all gone. The whole thing has changed, but that's the foundation. Was those two things that gave us access to people? When you were writing the legacy, and I was privileged to read some of your early chapters on that and talk to you about that. What I thought was interesting in that ministries, businesses run by believers are pretty similar. I mean, the way you earn income versus, you know, you're selling a product or donation to a charitable thing is different, obviously. But when you look at those leaders and succession, most people, this is new territory. And you and I have talked at length about the failures. I mean, one of the first books you gave me was God and Guinness. And I think I read it in you know, 24 hours. I couldn't put it down. Whether you're a teetotaler or not doesn't matter. The story of that ministry that ended up being a publicly traded company that has no connection whatsoever to its history, that struck a chord with you. Our friend Stephen Mansfield wrote that book. That was one of several that you said, I have to think about what's this like beyond Dave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you can leave a legacy. And there's biblical, tons of biblical examples. I mean... But they don't work in our worldview experience. Very few are successful. That's what I'm trying to well, ask. Well, we don't. Yeah, we don't. In some cases, it's a season, and God said it's okay. Over. And you Fair. just say that 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 one's done. Yeah. And we kept asking God, "Is that what you want here?" Because we'll close this puppy up. God, you built this, and if you want to close up the tent, it's yours to close. And so, if you want to do that, but if you want this ministry to live on, then a lot of different things are going to have to be provided by you, God, that are beyond our ability. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, obviously I've got to be able to train and raise and have kids that become adults to be the next owners and ownership transfer to wise owners. Because you can have a great leadership team and turn the ownership over to the kids and the kids are idiots and they destroy the whole right. thing. So you got to have wise owners. And so we start training owners. We got to have a leadership team that you can transfer to. Pretty quickly we had that. Because we've always had really good, strong leadership here relative to our size. And so as we've gotten larger, the, the leadership's even stronger and more sophisticated. But early days, we had people that could run this thing for the owners if the owners were not physically in the seat, if I was gone, in other words. And so we had that leadership team there. Brand transfer was a real challenge. You know, Paul Harvey Jr., often struggles. Yeah. The, the pastor's son who follows a big pastor that has a big pair of shoes, a big shadow, struggles. It's hard to be, you know, be the old man. You're not like the old man. Of course I'm not like the old man. In some ways, that's so good, you know. <laughs> so, right, right. But that brand transfer, and God showed us in our case, and it wouldn't work in the pulpit necessarily, but it was a one-to-many transfer so that I don't have one person carrying the voice of this and the teaching. We've got 10 Ramsey personalities. 
And then does a family member come up inside that actually is in the operations is the other piece. And it's just, there's a lot of moving parts to it. Churches, and I'm thinking of a dental practice or a church where the founding pastor, like Hardwick, started it and hoped his sons might take it. They come to you and ask, what are the two, three, you say, non-negotiables? You have to understand this before you even talk about, to your point, maybe it's time for this to fold up. But maybe this goes on. And again, we could share stories all day about failures. So what's Dave say that, you know, two or three that these have these are unassailable. They have to happen if transition is going to work. What we found as we've studied, and we've done a lot of research and a lot of interviews of families, businesses, and ministries that have succeeded, and some that fail. We've done both. And we're looking for these common thread things. There's three or four things that are just absolute non-negotiables. One is we found a high correlation between the person running it today and their personal higher calling or nobility, meaning that it wasn't all about them. They were willing to let go of things and step back very uncomfortably to their personal self in order for the good of the whole thing. The founder or the leader who it's all about them, they almost never do transition, almost never do succession. So it requires that it, for the good of the ministry, for the good of the, the work of the Lord. For Can the that good be of, learned? Good of, yeah, it's a decision. It's a decision. Cause, cause but it, it, seems- but it, it really does come down to stewardship. For me, it was fairly easy to get the concept, the concept uh, yeah. because it's a stewardship thing. I don't own it. It's not mine. Yeah, but and, you know and, a lot of pulpits in America that are our friends, and they own that thing. I baby. know, I know, but you, that's what I'm saying. Even in that case, they've got to step back and go, this is not mine. My job is to manage it well, and I'm not doing my job by letting it go into the grave with me. My job is to hand it off. That's thing one, is higher calling. Second thing is, if you're not already working on transition, you're late. <laughs> it's just the more gradual the transition, the more time you have to fine-tune, and the smoother it goes. So the longer the plan, the better. Mm. The shorter the plan, and of course the world's worst plan is what typically happens is the old man grabs his chest, is dying of a heart attack, falls back into the grave, and as he's falling back, throws the keys out, right? (laughs) And that's the worst, right? Because now everybody's trying to go, I don't even know where the checking account is. I don't even know where this is. I don't know where that is. So the more gradual, the better. A higher calling, we found that to be a best practice that you can step back and say, it's not mine, it's not mine. And I have to remind myself of that because I I get great joy out of what I do, including running this place. It's evident. And so the problem with planning your to be less important is it works. (laughs) You become less important. It's a problem. Marginalized real quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll they'll remind you. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah. But you told me this. I'm like, yeah, I know, but shut up. Yeah. And so (laughs) along the way, you've got to wear the hats, stay in your roles. As you talk to Daniel, as you talk to me, as you talk to anybody in this place, it's a, you know, when you're at work, you're wearing the boss hat. When you're at home, you're wearing the, the grandpa hat or the daddy hat or the husband hat or whatever, and don't mix them. So husbands and wives that work together, when you speak to your team Boy. member like it's your wife, Yikes. it's a completely different voice tone, a completely different process. When the wife whines yeah. at work like she's being a wife rather than being a professional. I talked to a couple the other day. She was the chief marketing officer, and he was the CEO. 
and they were having these arguments, like loud arguments at work. And I said, do you talk to your other team members that way? No. So why would you think you could talk to your this team member that way? Mm. It's completely, it's a role violation. Yeah. So when you're at work, you be what you're at work. When you go home, you change hats. Your Thanksgiving dinner, this is my son. Here's the president. Mm-hmm. What concerns you most about when you look at Ramsey Solutions and that person who's calling in for the first time or upside down financially, what keeps you awake? We are constantly having to evolve. And I've gotten over it, but there was a period in time in my life where I just was ready for it to get easy. <laughs> like, you know, I kept thinking somebody was going to discover us and it was going to be okay. You know, like we're going to be a star. No, because as soon as you get something figured out, the market moves. Like we were just talking about publishing. It's moved. Broadcasting has moved. And when we started this, there was not an internet. There was certainly not podcasts or Lord help us, TikTok, you know, and so on. But how do we take these mediums that have, in some cases, are full of disastrous human beings and still enter into that market and displace some of it, take up space for God. And, you know, how can you be godly on TikTok? I'm not sure that's possible, but mm. we're trying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate it. But, uh, but you know, that, that's what keeps me up at night is that we'll get stuck in one of the old methodologies. The principles don't change, but the methodologies have to change. The, the delivery. So one of our core values around here is we shoot our sacred cows. And my yeah. fear is maybe we don't shoot one soon enough. Yeah. And lastly, what gives you the greatest joy? We've got several places that we tell my salvation story and then pray with people over that medium, whether it's a MP3 or a used to be cassette tapes a thousand years ago <laughs> or whatever. But we keep the letters and the emails that come in of people that meet God because of what we're doing. The dirty little secret about Ramsey Solution is, is we're really not here to get people out of debt. We get people out of debt so we can sneak into their living room and lead them to Jesus. Getting them out of the ultimate debt. Yeah, lead them to Jesus. And so, again, taking up space for the gospel and getting to evangelize is, because that's how I met God. Yeah. I went to a secular mainstream thing. I would have never gone to a church. My wife couldn't get me to go to a church. And this guy that I admired who did other things for me, taught me things I needed to know, Mm -hmm. but became a blessing in my life, then said, oh, and by the way. By the way. You need to know this man this named Jesus. This is more Jesus. important. Yeah. You need to know this man named Jesus. It'll change your life. It'll change your death. Dave Ramsey, you can find out all about him in our show notes. Just put his name in any search engine. And you'll find out all kinds of information. <laughs> <laughs> some good, some entertaining, some uh, some uh, not so good, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Count on it. Love you, brother. Thank you for your time. Greatly appreciate it. You too, my friend. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.